This episode is sponsored by Keen. Are you wondering what 2023 will have in store for you? Or maybe you're looking for love advice or to get a tarot card reading to give you some guidance on how you should proceed throughout the year? Well, look no further. Keen connects you with gifted psychics, tarot readers, and astrologers. All you have to do is create an account and you'll be able to choose from hundreds of readers who are online right now. Their readers each have unique specialties designed to provide a deeper understanding of your situation. You also have the freedom to choose whichever reader best suits your needs, and you'll be able to connect with them via phone call or text. As a new customer on Keen, you can try your first 10 minutes for only $1.99, which is up to $99 in savings. Go to trykeen.com slash holidays after dark to save big on your first reading. That's T-R-Y-K-E-E-N dot com slash holidays after dark. Feel more confident about your future by trying Keen today. Hey, holiday lovers. Welcome to another episode of Holidays After Dark, the podcast that brings awareness to all the alternative, weird, and unknown sides of the holidays we all know and love. I'm your host, Kristen. I hope everyone's spring is going well so far. All of us lovers of fall and winter just have to keep reminding ourselves that each day is one day closer to those months. Although, after spring, we have to deal with that dreaded summer first. Ugh. I guess one perk of these spring months is all the good food that starts to come around again. The fruit selection at the grocery store, which is my favorite part, drastically starts to improve, and it's a good time to bake light lemony desserts and make the first pitcher of strawberry lemonade for the year. As we know, Easter is typically a time to celebrate the end of the season of Lent, more in the end of those delicious fish fries, and most traditionally for some, recognize the resurrection of Jesus, depending on your belief system. It's coming up quite soon, on Sunday, April 9th this year. But especially for young children, Easter is also a time to receive candy and hunt for eggs full of treats left in the yard by the magical and mysterious Easter Bunny. But from where did this bunny originate and how did it come to be perhaps the most well-known and certainly the most adorable part of modern Easter celebrations? Let's uncover the mystery behind this floppy-eared fellow. As Christians are likely aware, the Bible makes no mention of a magical rabbit who shows up and delivers eggs to children on the day of the resurrection. However, one theory of how this legend began, according to Time magazine, is that the symbol of the rabbit stems from the ancient pagan tradition on which many of our Easter traditions are based, the festival of Ustra. I covered Ustra last year in a couple of my springtime episodes, but just as a refresher, this festival was held in order to honor the goddess of fertility and spring. The goddess's animal symbol was a rabbit, which have long traditionally stood for fertility due to their high reproduction rates. However, more traditional religions also valued the rabbit for its representation of renewal and rebirth. In the Neolithic Age in Europe, hares were given ritual burials alongside humans. Archaeologists have interpreted this as a religious ritual to honor the symbolism of the animal. 
Over a thousand years later, during the Iron Age, ritual burials for hares were common. In 51 BCE, Julius Caesar mentioned that in Britain, hares were not eaten due to their religious significance. Caesar likely would have been aware that in the classical Greek tradition, hares were sacred to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Meanwhile, Aphrodite's son Eros was often depicted carrying a rabbit as a symbol of unquenchable desire. From the Greek world through the Renaissance, hares often appear as symbols of sexuality in literature and art. For example, the Virgin Mary is often shown with a white rabbit, symbolizing that she overcame sexual temptation. The first accounts of the Easter Bunny seem to stem from the 1600s in Germany. Written accounts from England around the same time also mention the Easter hare, particularly in terms of traditional Easter bunny hunts and the eating of rabbit meat this time of year. That part may seem a little scary for the Easter bunny, in my opinion. One tradition, known as the hare pie scramble, was held in Hallaton, a small village in England. It involved eating a pie made with hare meat and people scrambling for a slice. In 1790, it's reported that the local parson tried to stop the custom due to its pagan associations, but he was unsuccessful and the custom reportedly continues in that village to this day. The eating of the hare may have been associated with various long-standing traditions of scaring away witches at Easter. Throughout Northern Europe, folk traditions record a strong belief that witches would often take the form of a hare, usually for the sake of causing mischief, such as stealing milk from neighbors' cows. Witches in medieval Europe were said to be able to suck out the life energy of others, making them fall ill. The idea that the witches of winter should be banished at Easter is a common theme that appears in several European festivals and rituals. The spring equinox, with its promise of new life, was held symbolically in opposition of the life-draining activities of witches in winter. An example of one of these festivals is translated into English as Easter fire and is a celebration in Germany involving large outdoor bonfires meant to scare away witches. In Sweden, popular folklore states that at Easter, the witches all fly away on their broomsticks to feast and dance with the devil on an island in the Baltic Sea. According to the History Channel, the Easter Bunny made its way to America when it was first introduced in the 1700s by German immigrants in Pennsylvania. They reportedly brought with them their tradition of an egg-laying hare named Osterhasa from the Old Country. As the legend goes, the rabbit would lay colorful eggs and give gifts to children who were good. So, kids would make nests in which the bunny could leave his eggs. Similar to leaving cookies out for Santa, the children would also sometimes set out carrots in case the Easter bunny got hungry while making his deliveries. This tradition gained in popularity and made its way across the country until it was a widespread Easter tradition. Over time, the fabled bunny's delivery expanded from just eggs to include other treats such as chocolate and toys. Since rabbits are mammals and, therefore, give birth to live young, it might seem odd that the Easter bunny goes around passing out eggs on this holiday. It turns out the reason for this is likely a combination of two fertility icons. First, the fruitful reproducing rabbit. Then, the eggs as a symbol of fertility, rebirth, and new life. Combined, the two strongly represent the springtime themes associated with Easter.
In modern times, the Easter Bunny is usually depicted as a white rabbit with long ears, often wearing colorful clothes similar to the ones humans wear. He can often be spotted at Easter parades in malls waiting to get his picture taken with eagerly awaiting and sometimes terrified children, and at other celebratory events this time of year. The bunny often carries with him a basket filled with colorful eggs, chocolate, candy, and other treats to hand out to the kids. Despite his widespread popularity, it's not always a rabbit who brings Easter eggs to children in some parts of the world. In Australia, the Easter bilby comes around on the holiday. The bilby is an endangered rabbit-like marsupial which is native to the land down under. Other gift-bringing animals include the Easter cuckoo in Switzerland, and in some parts of Germany, the Easter fox or rooster. How cute would it be if all these animals traveled the world together, teaming up to deliver eggs to children on Easter? While the Easter Bunny usually brings along with him feelings of nostalgia, joy, and childlike wonder, in one part of the United States, a decades-old urban legend took that classic imagery and turned it upside down into something much more sinister. Let's investigate the tale of the Bunny Man. In the area surrounding Washington, D.C., there is a story that a man dressed as a bunny haunts residential neighborhoods. This legend has reportedly been a fixture of our nation's capital and the surrounding states for decades. By 1973, sightings of the Bunny Man, as he is known, had been reported in Maryland and the District of Columbia. His infrequent and widespread appearances seem to occur in secluded locations and usually tell of a figure wearing a white bunny suit, armed with an axe, threatening children, or vandalizing property. By the 1980s, the Bunny Man had transformed into an even more sinister figure after being given credit for several gruesome murders. Although he has been reported as far south as Culpeper, Virginia, his main haunt is the area surrounding a railroad overpass near Fairfax Station, which is frequented by teenage partiers and is now known as the Bunny Man Bridge. The tale of the Bunny Man has largely been kept alive by the area's teenage population, according to an article from the Fairfax County Public Library. Over the years, the story gained in popularity as a way to create terror at parties and camping trips. The article's author mentions that one such telling claims that the Bunny Man is responsible for the deaths of two disobedient children in the Clifton area. Others were rumored to have disappeared, and there was also talk of animals found horribly mutilated, as is often a prerequisite of any notable serial killer. Obviously, the part of this legend which grabs the most attention is the question of whether or not the Bunny Man was a cold-blooded killer, and if so, who was he? Thanks to the hard work and research of the library, and of which I certainly will not take credit for, a few murders were narrowed down as possible examples of the Bunny Man's handiwork. On February 24, 1949, Frances Holliber drove with her eight-month-old daughter, June, to Fairfax County in the company of her estranged husband, Charles. They lived in Washington, D.C. and had apparently come to see the new lodge at the nudist colony to which Charles belonged. Upon leaving the lodge, the car became stuck in mud. 
An argument ensued between the couple and resulted in Francis taking the child and walking down the road away from the car. They seemingly vanished into thin air. Charles supposedly spent the night in the car and got a ride back to D.C. the next day. After returning to retrieve the broken-down car and finding no evidence of his wife and daughter, he notified the police. A massive search of the area was conducted, and eventually both mother and daughter were found in a shallow grave next to the lodge and less than 20 yards from where Charles' car had been stuck. Francis had been beaten and shot multiple times. It appeared the baby had been buried alive. The local community was unsurprisingly horrified by the brutal nature of the murders. Charles was eventually identified as the prime suspect. Charles later confessed that he had planned the murder for weeks, and after a short trial, he was found guilty and sentenced to die in the electric chair. His attorney filed an appeal alleging that the jury failed to give proper consideration to the plea of insanity and that the court made errors in its instruction to the jury. The Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals eventually overturned the conviction and ordered a new trial. Charles was recommitted to the Western State Mental Hospital where he was judged to be insane. Was he the real bunny man? The brutal nature of the murders, as well as his diagnosed insanity, make it a possibility. The next suspect in the case of Operation Bunny Man identification involved an attack on Minnie Ridgeway and her two young daughters. Minnie lived with her husband and three children on Telegraph Road in Alexandria, Virginia. Sometime on the morning of March 4, 1927, a man later identified as Louis Borsig paid a visit to the home, assuming Minnie's husband was home. Upon finding that he was gone from the house, Borsig attacked and beat Minnie into unconsciousness and then bludgeoned her two daughters. He stole money from the home and fled. The crime was discovered by a neighbor who heard moans coming from inside the house. All three victims were taken to the hospital, where both daughters later died. Minnie recovered and was able to identify her attacker, as he was an acquaintance of the family. Borsig was arrested at his home, found guilty, and executed for his crimes just three months after they occurred. Was this an example of a bunny man crime? One last possibility of a tragedy caused by the Bunny Man involves another brutal murder of a young girl. Peter Roy was a Danish immigrant and a prosperous farmer. He was a widower, but lived with his eldest daughter Caroline, her husband William, and his younger daughter Eva. On the morning of August 4, 1918, Eva, age 14, left home at around 9 a.m. to tend to her father's herd of cows. When Eva failed to return home that evening, a search began. Roughly 24 hours later, her body was found tied to a tree in the woods. Her apron strings were tied tightly around her neck. The coroner concluded that the girl had been brutally assaulted before being strangled to death. An investigation identified Lou Hall as a suspect. Hall, a 33-year-old woodcutter, lived about a half mile from the scene of the crime and was seen in the woods around the time of the murder. However, multiple other suspects soon emerged. 
One was William Wooster, who had recently been released from an insane asylum. The next suspect was a soldier who had recently deserted his post. When he was captured, he had scratches on his face and hands and an unclear story about his whereabouts over the past couple days, but he was eventually cleared. The next break came with the apprehension of Ben Rubin, an escaped inmate from Lorton Prison. Rubin, who had been serving a three-year sentence for housebreaking, was arrested by Washington, D.C. police on September 19th for assaulting a little girl. On the way to the police station, Rubin confessed to Eva's murder. He claimed to have met her while she was tending to the cows, but when he told her he was an ex-convict, she threatened to turn him in. This resulted in the subsequent attack. The investigators weren't convinced by his story, so they took him to the scene of the crime. When he was unable to locate the scene on his own or the tree where the body was left, he finally denied killing Eva. Lou Hall was eventually tried for the murder in Fairfax County Court. His first trial resulted in a hung jury, but the second resulted in a clear verdict of not guilty. Peter Roy, the father of the victim, died on January 22, 1938, and was interred at Lee Chapel Cemetery next to his youngest daughter. Her true murderer was never found. Was it the work of the bunny man? The answer to that question for all three of these crimes is likely a resounding no. None of them mention any connection to a bunny suit or anything of that nature. There are many other stories, variations, and theories out there about who the bunny man possibly could have been. There simply isn't enough evidence to connect the dots and reach a final verdict. But the general opinion seems to be that the bunny man is indeed a long-held myth, likely started and then perpetuated by young people hoping to feel the thrill of danger, like all of us so often sought at that age. So perhaps it's more likely that one or all of these crimes helped shape and inspire the story of the Bunny Man, the scariest tale in Fairfax County. If you have any interesting holiday-related stories you'd like me to share in an episode this season, feel free to send them to me. Email Kristen at HolidaysAfterDark.com, direct message at Holidays Podcast on Instagram or Twitter, or find Holidays After Dark on Facebook. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss your dose of holiday darkness. A rate or review would also be greatly appreciated. Thank you to my sister Ashley for editing and producing the podcast. Today I will leave you with some lyrics from the song Mad as Rabbits by Panic at the Disco. Check it out after this episode. He took the days for pageant and became as mad as rabbits. With bushels of bad habits, who could ask for any more? Who could have more? This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. In today's challenging world, it's very easy to start feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or overwhelmed. If you're experiencing any of these feelings, BetterHelp is here for you. They offer licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. You can talk to your therapist in a private, online environment at your convenience. There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000-plus therapist network that gives you access to help that may not be available in your area. 
You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you're matched with a therapist in as little as 48 hours. You can also request a new therapist at no additional charge at any time. Join the 3 million-plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Holidays After Dark. That's BetterHelp.com slash Holidays After Dark.